welcome to All About Design. I'm Jamie Garza. I'm a structural engineer here in Los Angeles with the Design Collaborative, and I'm passionate about empowering our community to build a sustainable and fulfilling environment. In each of our episodes, we will invite our guests to discuss how we create, design, and inspire a better world for each of us. We're excited to share our vision with you. Now let's jump in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this podcast on sustainable design, or maybe a different way of saying it, ecological design. Today, we have special guest, Shitra Vishwana, and she's an architect in Bangalore, India. She were, she's a principal at Biome Environmental Solutions. Also joining us is a collaborator, Megan Costello, an architect practicing here in Los Angeles, and Kristen Cole, a mechanical engineer, also a practicing engineer here in Los Angeles. Hi, everybody. Thank you, Jamie, and uh, lovely to meet you all virtually. I'm an architect, as uh, Jamie introduced, from Bangalore, India. I founded uh, my practice in 1991, so... It was quite old, but it began as a proprietorship, just me, and I called it Chitra Vishnath Architect without, because one never thought there could be any other name for it. But it grew, and it grew with people from other disciplines too, joining into the practice, and uh, so now we call ourselves Biome Environmental Solutions. Biome means the ecology of a place, because we work on ecological architecture. Now we're about 30 strong, though in the COVID times we are less in the office. But it's been an exciting journey. Thank you, Shitra. Hi, everyone. I'm Kristen Cole. I'm a mechanical engineer practicing here in LA, as Jamie mentioned. I've been working in the industry for about six years. I got my start in facilities engineering for a global industrial company and then transferred over to HVAC system design. But um, one of the main reasons I got into this field was because I wanted to reduce the energy consumption and carbon footprint associated with mechanical systems and really kind of challenge the paradigm of needing HVAC in America. Hi, my name is Megan Costello. I'm a practicing licensed architect in California working out of Los Angeles, California. I've worked on a variety of project types, single family, multifamily, commercial, religious, institutional. And I decided that I wanted to be an architect when I was around 10, 12 years old and decided that I needed to have an impact on the built environment and how people lived and interacted with it. Thank you all. So the basis of this discussion is we all want to change the world. And uh, we know that we're in the, this climate crisis and we know we have to act. And we're in industries where we can create positive change. Me, Kristen and Megan here in Los Angeles, here in California, here in the United States, are really frustrated by kind of the way things we typically do day to day in our design practice is not very sustainable. It's been this way. It's hard to change. It's hard to change our ways. It's hard to change behaviors. And we came across Shitra, and you seem to be doing this in your practice, 
your buildings are amazing. They're amazing looking. They, there's a design focus on the indoor-outdoor experience, really using your environment to benefit the people that use the space inside. And Chitra, I was wondering, can you tell us how you got there and tell us a little bit about your practice? So I'll start from the latter. Biome prides itself as being a pioneer in bringing the idea of ecological architecture into the schema of uh, urban home dwellers, the city itself. So we learned a lot from the small, the small being the, the city homes, which we were designing. This, how we got here has all to do with uh, the city and the kind of crisis Bangalore faced and also what Bangalore could give. So we started a practice with making economical homes by reducing cost of homes a person wants to build with. But uh, that alone wasn't enough when we realized that Bangalore also faces problems of water, sanitation, energy. And how do we bring all that in a design itself? Because otherwise, traditionally, an architect designs these spaces, very seductive spaces, and everybody is happy with it. But how do you bring in the issues of water? So I really like to say, how do you make buildings livable than only habitable? That became a challenge, and bringing in issues of water and sanitation was how we came into what we call as ecological architecture, and especially the homes we were designing in uh, suburbs of Bangalore, where the land cost was lower, where the homes which challenged us that make these homes fine, you make them with earth also, it's fine, but how do I live in it? Where do I get water from? Where does my sewage go? And how do we, I close the loop, reuse the water? So it was interesting. But now this, these learning became part of larger projects also, whether they're institutions, whether they're housings or hospitality, these inputs keep coming. And so, and India keeps challenging us, even in different parts of India, designing passive becomes another aspect to be worked with. The question how to reduce HVAC becomes an important factor in the design. So we go beyond architecting spaces. I like this concept of ecological design. And as we were talking, preparing for this podcast, you kind of had it, you kind of corrected us because we kept talking about sustainable design and sustainable Mm -hmm. architecture. And you kind of brought in the holistic approach to this design problem. And here in the U.S., we, I think, take for granted water and sewage, uh, even though we shouldn't, because water is becoming a a major crisis here in, in in the U.S., in California. It's a major issue moving forward. And then in other parts of the world, it causes wars. It causes a lot of struggles. I wonder, Megan, can you speak of kind of our current approach in the United States as far as sustainable design? And then what do we even see the ecological approach or the wider community approach in the U.S.? I think that In my experience in both the educational setting and the professional setting, it is always, always the goal of young architects to think about sustainable 
design, sustainable or green architecture. I do love this term ecological because I think it's a lot more holistic. But as a student, I was in love with the idea of touching the ground lightly, reusing materials, and really pushing the boundaries on that idea. But when you get into the practice of architecture and taking your, your lead exam, which is one of the first things I did when I started working for a firm, LEAD is the Leadership of Environmental Education and Design. I'll have to double check those acronyms and you can edit that back in later. Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. It's essentially a test that gives you a rubric that is then just stamped on buildings. And it really, it's just a way to monetize the greenification of building. And as you get into the practice of building buildings, and working with clients, green is a beautiful term, but it never makes it all the way through. And the only way that things make it all the way through to construction is when you can prove to a client and a contractor that the bottom line is going to work out and that you have to do it. So a lot of our standards on green design or ecological design come down to code. So in California, it's a headache. We, we complain about it when we have to go to the building department to use infiltration pits because we know in the end we're going to have to fight this battle with the city and to get the client happy. It is a bureaucratic problem rather than an ecological solution. No, I get that, Megan. And I, uh, is there, is it feasible with our current codes? And this goes to Kristen, you know, from an engineering perspective, can we actually in the United States create this ecological design in buildings and in our environments? That's a great question, Jamie. I think that there is a pathway to creating more of an, an ecological design culture in the U.S., the code isn't so much prohibitive as the owner's budget, as Megan was saying. You really have to prove to a client that your solutions or your strategies are going to win out long term when it comes to cost. That's what, frankly, most of our clients care about. But I don't see the code standing in the way. Yeah, I'd like to clarify that myself. It's not that the code stands in the way. The code is the only reason that we do it. I wonder, okay, so I, I think we have the perfect picture here of design in the United States. And maybe I'd love to hear what Chitra has to say about design in India. It may be very similar, but part of our efficiency in the United States is to break up every design profession and uh, break apart the architecture, the engineering, the mechanical engineering, the structural engineering. And we're all these units that work together, but separately. We all are different companies and we have to work together, but it's not necessarily profitable to really have this unified, wonderful, green ecological design. It's easier to just do kind of the status quo. It's faster. Everyone knows how to do it. And I wonder if part of the issue is starts with us, like as designers, as mechanical engineer and architect, do we need to be communicating more? Do we need you guys to be in the same office, 
doing the same thing, does the mechanical engineer really need to be working on the architecture and the architect be working on the HVA systems in the building? Same with the structural, you know, how do we create an efficient structure, but celebrate that architecturally and make sure that it's sustainable in the process? Everybody really needs to work together and sit at the same desk. That's, I think, the most important. Yeah, in the ideal situation, yes, everybody should be working together. But also what one has noticed, different, we call them MEP, mechanical, electrical, and uh, plumbing and the consultants. It's not quite possible for an architecture firm, especially for us, let's see, that uh, we could have everybody together and give them the salaries or make it uh, worthwhile in that we will be involved in all projects with everyone too. Because in India, or especially in our place, we don't uh, have an HVAC in uh, homes we design. If we work at good architecting of the space in terms of where which wall gets higher sun or which roof I would like to shade, we don't really need to be cooling the homes, or especially by talking to the so HVAC may not be needed. And similarly, a large part of uh, designing for plumbing and sanitation, we do it ourselves in the homes. So though we are not able to work together, we usually discuss a lot more. And it's very important that we discuss and not that an architect designs and passes this on to the structural engineer. Now you put your columns in B and we'll discuss. But the architect has to be a generalist, should know about construction, should know about structure, should know about uh, water and sanitation, should know about electricity, all these aspects, and not in a sense that becomes like a surgeon there, not somebody who is totally knowing about it completely, but should be able to ask the right questions to the other disciplines we interact with. But also it's very important that an architect should always be studying and learning the new sciences. We, as architects, we cannot be ossified. We, we have to cons- constantly learning. So space making is one, but how to make also is something we'll keep learning. So in fact, in the college, I never learned about building with earth. Everything was in the practice. And for that, yes, Certain engineers and uh, professors of civil engineering here were practicing it to go and see what's happening in the institute and learn. And so it's never finished. And that's what I feel. It would be lovely to have everybody together in one office if it works out financially. Otherwise, yes, the other consultants have to meet other architects too. And I think that's also much more in terms of variety. The the structural and the MEP consultants get to interact and learn too. Because in a practice, like suppose if it's in my practice, we would be only doing with earth and there will be others who will be doing with uh, great work with RCC or parametric designs. And for that, it's important that uh, you are interacting with many others. But it's important the conversations. 
an understanding which needs to develop. I think we need to change our design approach. Us as engineers, I'm a structural engineer, an earthquake engineer, and my interactions with architects, I want a seat at the table, and I often don't have a seat at the table. And I think, I think you're right. The financial model of us all being in one company and everything being profitable and successful is probably not feasible in our current economy. But I do think individually we can create change and maybe it can become feasible because I think part of our issue of progressing design, progressing sustainable design or ecological design is because we're all separate entities with separate interests. And I think we need to start aligning our interests to address climate change specifically or the climate crisis. I feel like here in the United States, we have a lot of luxuries. We take water and sewage for granted. We take energy for granted, but we can't really. It's a false comfort that we're thinking that we can use fossil fuels and not pay for it. And I think deep, we all understand it intellectually, but we're not willing to sacrifice yet. I'm not seeing that. And I'd love to hear what Megan has to say about whether we as a culture here in the United States can get to a point of what we're seeing Shitra do in her design practices, go without HVAC, but actually design the house with the correct shading, with the type of walls, putting the openings in the right place to create airflow. Like, can we create that culture? I think one thing that Chitra shared with us last time we spoke before this podcast that has stuck with me since, and I think about it every evening when the temperature rises in my house and I go to turn on my portable air conditioner, is that air conditioning is hedonistic. And here in the United States, we are so hedonistic about having the perfect temperature in our homes and being comfortable, 100% comfortable. And that sent me kind of back to my sustainable design classes that I took in college and looking back at the material then and and looking at uh, thermal delight. And when we find delight in our climate, it's because it's changed. We were hot and we found a breeze or it was cold and we found a warm spot of sunlight. And we in the United States have become so sedentary in our homes and our workplaces that especially when I've been working from home with COVID uh, out there and I get hot, instead of reaching for the air conditioning button, I now take a walk around the house. I walk outside on the deck where the Western exposure is beating down on me and I let myself get even hotter. And then I walk to the back part of the house that's shaded and cool and I have a ceiling fan running. And then I walk back into my office, which is somewhere in the middle. And I'm able to find thermal delight in just varying my setting rather than being hedonistic and turning on the air conditioner. And to answer your question, Jamie, how do we go about changing this in the United States? It's by doing just that. It's changing our mindset. It's changing the idea that we have to be 75 degrees and comfortable or in Celsius, 23 degrees and comfortable yeah. at all times. It's being being okay with it, getting a little warm and getting up to get a glass of cold water 
It's being okay with it being cold and putting on a sweater. It's finding delight in the thermal changes. Kristen, this is completely an engineering problem, but it's a problem that you need a Megan. You need someone who's a willing partner on the architectural side to be innovative on the HVAC or cooling side, heating side of your environment. How do you see the future happening as far as HVAC and really addressing our climate crisis? I think that question is best looked at through the lens of the different sectors. So if you take like residential architecture, for example, I think maybe working hand in hand with an architect and doing some uh, energy modeling studies, you could end up laying out a house in such a way that the spaces you want to be in in the afternoon aren't located on a western facing facade, you know. So I think that there's some time of day planning that can happen residentially and also in the commercial sectors. So if you know that your particular client has a lot of, they tend to schedule afternoon meetings, don't put a conference room on the Western facade if possible. Like maybe you put a corridor on that facade and you do some sort of creative daylighting to get daylight into the interior spaces. I think as long as mechanical engineers or energy modelers or the appropriate people are brought in early enough to the programming phase, some of those decisions could be made. I love what she said because it's it when I look at Shitra's buildings, they do that. Like they're laid out in a way that blocks direct sunlight, allows for ventilation to pass through the building, allows for light to come in from the top of the building. And then I look at Los Angeles and all the new buildings we're building and we completely ignore that. We have south facing, we have curtain walls all the way up, and then we condition the space to be that perfect temperature. So we use a lot of energy and our codes punish us for that now. And so we have to put heavy tints on the glass and uh, offset our energy use. But does it, are we just designing the wrong way? Yeah, I think that we are taking the wrong approach to design. A lot of times how it works is, you know, the architects, they come up with a preliminary layout or program. And then later on, we get brought into the conversation before, I mean, but I mean, after it's too late to really make any major changes and have an input into that conversation. And being brought in so late to the process, it's really hard to bring in natural ventilation to the floor plan as a discussion, because how can you get a cross breeze through your floor plan if you have a bunch of interior walls that are dividing up everything? So really, it's just about how can we get together as soon as possible and put all the heads in the same room. Electrical engineers, too, coming up with daylighting solutions. How can we reduce our electricity consumption? It's really just getting all at the table at the same time. I must take one example of a project of ours, which is in a hot, arid area. And in fact, it was very nice that the architect in the office started working with an with HVAC consultant from the very beginning because uh, it was the envelope design which we worked on rather than working on how do I cool the surface inside after we have designed. And it's from the envelope designer and from that we got the idea that we should put wind catchers into the building and get the cooler air and let it go through the wind catcher and get make it cooler inside. Because it's, it's a school 
where the steel plants are nearby and so the air is also quite dusty. So how do you make the spaces inside less dust prone? And then the designing of various uh, semi-open spaces to shade walls, everything started by the interaction between the two of them, the architect and the designer. So it's very important that the two come together. But the use of glass, Jamie, it's also because the eye trumps the body, and this is not referring to your precedent, but it's the importance nowadays we are giving to the visual. What should we look at? So I was talking to somebody else. We also put a lot of glass in our buildings, then our chaotic roads also become worthy watching. So it's a kind of a voyeurism which is happening in architecture where you're very comfortable inside. So everything is a photograph. Everything is a cinema, which you can watch with the comfort from inside. And that's what glass has done to us. And with the glass coming in, yes, various ways of making it cooler inside, and everything else comes with it. So how do we design now that it's not only visual, it's also body and soul? Something for me, this is Megan, that helped me really shift my thoughts on, quote, beautiful, glassy skyscrapers was another thing from college. And I keep drawing back on my education. And Chitra, this is kind of what we had spoken about before as well, is that architects need to be questioning constantly and being curious. And so I, I often am going back to my old textbooks uh, years, years, years later. But one thing I remember on an early design course was talking about the United Nations building in New York City. And at first glance, it's a beautiful 39-story glass building. But then when you look closer, there are four black bars that stretch across that building. And I remember my professor pointing to those black bars and saying, see that? That's two whole floors that don't exist in this building because it's cooling all of the glass. And so when you start to look at the building as a whole and not just this glass, but you then start to notice these black bars across, I can't look at a downtown skyline the same. Every time I look at glass buildings, I look for that mechanical floor. And it's always there, especially in these older buildings. It is always there. So it's shifting what the eye sees, and it's catching those imperfections that could have been designed out if it had just been thought of from a holistic approach rather than just slapping in mechanical systems. Oh, I love where this conversation is going. And I almost feel like, Chitra, you've reminded us here in the United States that we're a bit hedonistic, and I love that word. And uh, But I do feel like I bear some responsibility, and I see it. Like, Kristen, you mentioned doing energy modeling, beginning of a project. You know, when we pitch this to clients, we charge more for that modeling because it's not typical. And when, like, as far as earthquake engineering, if you want a building that's going to survive an earthquake, you have to recharge more money to get you there. The standard building code building is a damaged building in an earthquake. It's a throwaway building. As structural engineers, we know how to fix the problem, but we tell the clients they have to pay extra to get that sustainable building. And I think it's the same with mechanical engineering. 
they charge extra to get that extra green sustainable building. If we want to go to a net zero building, a net zero carbon emitting building, you pay the design team a lot of money, a lot of extra money to design it. And then you pay the contractor even more than a typical building. And these buildings can become, you know, when we mention sustainable and ecological buildings to develop here, they shut down. They immediately say no, and because it's out of their price range. It's not feasible. It's not typical. It's not in their pro forma. And Chitra, I wonder, you've been doing this for a while. How do you, you've seen those same challenges of clients not wanting to go the extra mile, but you go the extra mile anyway, to some degree. But then there is some convincing your client to invest in in better design. And I do feel like better design doesn't necessarily mean it's expensive or, yeah. or more costly to build. Yeah, so here we do that. And it's, it's also as difficult to insist on um, using systems. But if we can design without the system and, and design it with it being part of the building itself, it becomes easier. The systems are expensive. If we are talking with somebody on air conditioning, the split is something which they say, yeah, we, we can put it. But if you talk about VRV, they are saying, no, it's more expensive. We can't afford it. So the first object of the design would be how do I reduce it through design itself? And that is sometimes not make the client even think that they're adding to it. But also talking about the fees or extra fees, I think that's something we should talk saying with respect to the return of investment. So if we're saying no to systems, if we can design within the design of an architectural project and not putting in systems of cooling or of making it difficult for the client, then the fees should not be something the client should really think about because the return on investment through design is so much more. And that that should be part of the patronage from the client and should think of it. But it's a battle all the time. And uh, here too, if we have to go through lead, or here it's called IGBC, Indian Green Building Council, and there are other, other rating systems in place, they are hugely vendor-based, and that's what we try to avoid. We go back to what we are taught, Megan, you know, go back to doing the passive climatic design as much as possible, talk to clients also in terms of lifestyle changes. But hedonism is something any architect, any mechanical engineer, any structural engineer cannot avoid. But uh, I don't understand why in an earthquake-prone region we should play with lives of people or play with even resources of construction. Okay, people are safe, but then we have to again spend money to retrofit a building. I think the ideal should be that we design for earthquake-proofing. And why even ask the question? Now, again, for that, it's let's show the return of investment if a certain say scale two or three earthquake really happens and cracks happen, how much do you have to spend on making it right? But it's also the 
factor that when people are not really involved in making of their spaces that we come into such situations so a developer or builder will build with the lowest input and move away and they have absolutely no responsibility of what they have built they go away from that and how do we make the ultimate client or owner or occupier be responsible or have a voice while the designing is happening it should be demanded that i will move into this building if these these aspects are in place if it's earthquake proof if it reduces the energy compared to say building b where i am right now paying a certain dollars will this reduce for the same amount of area i occupy these are the questions the people who will ultimately use the building should ask and somewhere along the line the media and uh, should put these questions out where people who will use our buildings are knowledgeable chitra i have a question for you how do you keep yes. the contractors from changing your design do you have an active role in the construction process and keeping what you've drawn and specified being what's actually being installed yes that we do make it we have not yet got caught into projects where there is a different contractor who doesn't listen to us we try to make it a bigger team and uh, we've had to take the contractor through the whole process many a times and so the times when we have all the three on board the client the contractor and the architect working together in understanding everything so it's not only the contractor it's also the client that we should not change and we as architects are not constantly there at the site the contractor and the clients meet a little more often than the architect when the construction happens the contractors have the possibility of changing the client's mind saying this is expensive or this is not fair so yes. from the very beginning we insist that every design decision is gone through us the changes so then and we also are humble enough to listen to the contractors too especially in places where we haven't had the experience and we try to learn from them so it's a it's a process of negotiations huge negotiations there are times when being a woman megan becomes a little difficult for the contractors to understand and accept uh, but it's been easy here in india it's not that bad in india times and i found that to be quite enlightening to be here about the patriarchy but in architecture when we are working in that space there isn't so much in architecture especially that we are able to converse so the importance is there of knowing the engineering to ask the right questions so knowing structural knowing how to construct knowing about water and energy is as important this too much on the architect when i speak to younger architects 
especially younger female architects, the first thing I tell them is you have to be an expert on everything or at least have an answer for everything. You have to be prepared because whatever question a contractor asks you, they're trying to prove you wrong. They're trying to establish their dominance over the construction site. And as a woman, especially, you have to be prepared to answer every question. And if you don't have an answer, say, let me check on the drawings and I'll get back to you. But you can never say, I don't know. Yeah, I 100% agree with what Megan just said. You have to have an answer ready for everything. You even have to anticipate the questions in advance when possible. And you can never, ever say, I don't know. Have to be so confident in your responses. And it's it's not just because you have to be confident to run a job site. It's because you have to be confident in all of these aspects to design a good building. You have to understand everything. It's not just one piece. It's a holistic ecosystem, even. I think good design, and I do think that women are going to change the world, and it's time for women to take a lead role in architecture, design, and construction. But I think part of that is going back to nature, going back to the basics. And I see, like, in this pandemic times, where there's a big emphasis on clean air, recirculating air in places. And I see, Shitra, that you're already doing that as a basic principle of ecological design. And I see us in the United States trending towards solving that with an HVAC solution, with technology, throwing more technology in a building, making it more expensive, making it more onerous for developers and owners, making it more expensive, charging higher fees. When maybe the solution is to tear it all out, tear it down, you know, go back to natural ventilation, figure out, work with the architect, work with the engineering team to really design a building that plays well with the sun and plays well with the natural environment. And Kristen, do you feel like that's possible? And how do you see a path forward doing that? I feel like that's possible in locations that are a little bit less urban. City center, air tends to be pretty dirty. So you wouldn't necessarily want to be bringing that into a building without filtering it first in some way. But I do see a path forward. I think back to what I believe Megan had said, we need to change our attitude. We need to stop being fixed on a certain temperature in terms of a number. We need to become comfortable moving from one space to the next or moving from outside to inside and being satisfied with that. So I think increasing our our temperature number tolerances indoors is probably the first step towards a more natural um, HVAC or non-HVAC solution. I can definitely hear the outdoors being brought into Chitra's basement right now with all the birds chirping. Oh, yeah. And also the vehicles have started moving. I agree with Kristen, and it's it's very interesting, and especially the phrase uh, made in use, thermal delight, and, and the present COVID times, what Jamie brought in. Isn't it? And I think it was one of your earlier podcasts where you were looking at the design of the office 
and work from home. So I think this COVID times is going to change quite a bit. So Kristen, the air of the city may not be needed for many people. They work from home or like you said, from not being in the city center and where the air is better. So yes, that would require that the homes have better system, are more passive than they start depending upon uh, HVAC at homes. So we might end up bringing bad air into the suburbs too if we don't design the homes passive. So this whole question of office and the changes it would bring, the density, if the density reduces within the office, which would be the requirement with the distancing, and if the density reduces, surely the air quality in the city would also improve. So there is a case here for a better suburb rather than always talking of a densified middle, the, the what you call that, the downtown. City center. Yeah. So, and so there is also a case for decentralized smaller spaces where there's a mix of both office and homes rather than traveling long distances. So this whole uh, 15 minute city should be the wave of the future where you can walk to your place of work if you need to. But then also is the, is the manufacturing area which we should really be thinking because I suppose in the, in the US and Europe, a lot of manufacturing has gone away from your uh, memory and your need. It's India and China which have become the manufacturing places. But how do we bring manufacturing into the schema of our uh, construct? If we cannot wish them away, we cannot wish them away, wish away cement plants or uh, places where uh, mechanical products are being manufactured and they contribute to the air. So there is a need for a complete ecosystem planning, which needs to go beyond the building. No, and I love that the fact that technology is great. You know, it's a it's a blessing and a curse. One, it's bringing us together. You're in India. You're in Bangalore, India. It's it's a morning Tuesday morning there, and it's Monday evening here in Los Angeles. We have similar climates and we have similar challenges. And I like how we've been able to share our ideas and we've been able to share a common ground and actually learn from, from you, Shitra, a designer in India, and, and see how you've inspired us as designers here in Los Angeles. I'd like to kind of close with kind of, I want to hear from each of you as far as what you guys see as the future, the near future. You know, we have, there's a crisis right now. There's a climate crisis. We're in a current pandemic. And around the world, there's also this social justice crisis. We have a, a larger and larger inequity between wealth, you know, the super wealthy, and there's more and more poor. And we have a society that doesn't need to be that way. And I think this is a design problem. I think we're in the middle of being agents of change in this area, you know, from a global pandemic, climate crisis, social justice crisis, what can we learn from each other and from this conversation moving forward to start designing differently tomorrow? 
it's really nice of this whole um, internet that we are so much more connected. So I would really see is that we be hyper-local in design because that's the space we are going to occupy. But in our thoughts, we have to be hyper-global. We have to learn from each other and a lot of sharing should happen. That's most important. And then it's important that we learn from each other. We, we don't become this, that to say something which the West thinks that it only knows and there isn't any other culture from where you could learn. And at this moment, a lot needs to be learned from the Indian subcontinent because we have gone through a huge, we have gone through tumultuous time through partitions, wars, and especially South Asia is engulfed in all kinds of uh, the negative impacts of climate change too. We are having floods, our uh, Glaciers are melting in the Himalayas and we are worked on. The pandemic is crazy. We will be the in India. And if we take the whole continent, the subcontinent, South Asia would be the one which will have the highest number of COVID patients. We would have, we have the largest, India itself is 18% of world's population or highest number of poor. So everything is here. And still, we are not at war as we see in the other countries. We are not really being, we're not oppressing anyone else. We, and we're still peaceful in a large way. So it's something we need to learn. And it's here that we need to learn even of design, even of uh, designing in ecological limits. If we start consuming the same way as US or Europe, is devastation. The climate change will be accelerated in five years. And it's so we have to learn from the poor. And how do we do that is something which uh, is a, it will be a question. So is there a way that now people who are comfortable can start saying, let's use less. Let's go into a degrowth rather than into constantly looking at the economical aspects and going on this eco-GDP curve of going up. But yeah, so it's a, for me, it's hyper-local, but learning from the global and learning from science and sociology, the two together is the future. I really love what you said. I'm sorry. I think we all said that at the same time. Yeah. This is a very interesting book, which you should all see. And this is from uh, US. I don't know where Mark Wigley and Beatrice Colomina. Megan, you've heard of this book, Are We Human? I haven't, no. But I was going to recommend to you another book. <laughs> uh, one book that I read recently, um, which really opened my eyes to a lot of these issues. Like you said, it's the, the West, which is creating problems for the global South, and it's all of our consumption that is really causing these problems. Mary Robinson, who was the first female president elected to Ireland in the 80s, she is the UN Special Convoy for Climate Change, and she wrote a book that's all about climate justice, and she talks to what she calls climate testifiers. And these are largely women forgotten in the global South 
who are dealing with the biggest issues of climate crisis and their small ways that they are speaking their truth on the global stage and actually being represented and heard and their solutions through small acts of resilience is just so inspiring within even the worst climate crisis we could ever imagine. And to see how these stories and solutions could be applied at a global level, like you said, thinking how we can design locally, but think globally. So I highly recommend Climate Justice by Mary Robinson. Thank you, Megan. That was inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. Shitra, I love what you said about we need to learn from the poor. I grew up without air conditioning or really heating in the second level of my home. I grew up without a dishwasher, without any of those like modern luxuries. And I didn't even have any of those things until I moved to Los Angeles, actually. So that's really what prompted me to pursue the reduction of of HVAC energy in my career. I grew up without air conditioning. I didn't need it. And I lived in a really hot and humid climate and just dealt with it. Um, Same thing with water consumption. You know, you don't need to wash your dishes like five times a day in a dishwasher that's like not even full. You don't need to do that. You can just wash each dish by hand and, you know, keep your water in a bucket and, that conserves a lot more water than running your client. So I really love what you said about that. And if people could just try to think like how poor people live, or I guess live it, or you know, maybe create that for their children growing up without some of those luxuries, maybe in 10 years, 15 years, we'd be in a much different place. Yeah. It's last chapter, which is on um, how we are connected, how our connection is in fact very high energy. Yeah. It's amazing that article. And then you realize, oh, it's so easy to talk, but there's these wires under so under the sea and a whole lot of infrastructure. How do we um, use it wisely, this interconnection? Yeah, we would probably get into Netflix and other stuff. But also these conversations are important. And how do we make this conversation as a learning experience? Well, Shitra, thank you again. I love what you said about being hyper-local in our design and in our intent, learning from the poor, but then in our thoughts and in our connectivity being hyper-global. And I think that's, uh, I've learned a lot and I've been challenged through this discussion with all of y'all, with Kristen, Megan, with Shitra, I thank you for being a part of this podcast and being a part of this discussion. And I'd love to continue this discussion and see how this evolves and how we can change the world. Thanks for listening to All About Design. Be sure to follow our channel and stay tuned for our next episode.